It's Monday, September 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The whistleblower will testify. House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff said that he has reached an agreement with the Trump-Ukraine whistleblower to come before the committee and be grilled by lawmakers. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss the latest controversy for the president and what to expect from this story this week. Next, having your flight delayed and canceled is a nightmare. But imagine if that nightmare happened for three days straight. American Airlines Flight 988 from Peru to Dallas was plagued by problems leading passengers to be stranded in Peru for days. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist for The Wall Street Journal, tells us how it happened and what you should do in similar circumstances. Finally, a U.S. adventurer recently became the first person to reach the world's deepest spots. Called the Five Deeps mission, Victor Vescovo, a Texas businessman, traveled solo to the deepest points of five oceans. The expedition discovered over 40 new species, corrected underwater maps, and more. Josh Dean, contributor to Popular Science, joined Victor at one of his missions and tells us his story. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As Director McGuire uh, promised during the hearing, uh, that whistleblower will be allowed to come in and come in without uh, a minder from the Justice Department or from the White House to tell the whistleblower what they can and cannot say. We'll get the unfiltered testimony of that whistleblower. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Wow, what a crazy week last week with all of this news concerning the president and whistleblower complaints, impeachment inquiries, a lot of things going on. One of the newest developments, the House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff said on one of the Sunday talk shows on ABC's This Week that they have reached an agreement with the whistleblower to provide testimony. And as we saw with the testimony given by the DNI, Joseph McGuire, there was a lot of fireworks there. I mean, when this whistleblower testifies, it's going to all intensify all over again. That's right. This story is not going anywhere, and it's moving at a breakneck pace. Normally, congressional investigations and looking into things take a long time. Congress will start to look at something. We are going to see two sort of explosive headline-grabbing testimonies in a matter of weeks, it looks like, days even maybe. I want to talk a little bit about Rudy Giuliani, who is a central figure in all of this. He came up in the complaint. He came up in the transcript of the president telling the Ukrainian president, hey, I, I want you to talk to Bill Barr and Rudy Giuliani. He was on the Sunday talk shows also, and he's saying that basically the president is being framed by Democrats. And I think he even gave a, an interview to The Atlantic saying he should be held up as the hero for uncovering all this wrongdoing with Joe Biden and his son. <laughs> what do we make of Rudy Giuliani right now? Rudy Giuliani has again emerged uh, as just a main character in this whole process. He hasn't made a secret of the fact that he's been asking the Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden. And it also his role here shows that this isn't purely government. You know, one of the challenges that has faced President Trump in this process is he sort of has yet to make an argument that his appeal to the Ukrainian president was in the interest of the American government, that he was acting in his role as the head of the American government. And sort of undercutting any ability to do that is the fact that Rudy Giuliani, not a government employee, but instead someone who serves in a sort of personal capacity, 
for the president was the one holding these conversations. So Giuliani has really just been as aggressive as he could be in trying to argue that uh, he nor the president did anything wrong and really just trying to throw and land every punch uh, he can uh, as this process continues. This whole week and this weekend now has been about the spin, the defense of the president, uh, obviously Democrats railing against the president for all this stuff. The president continues to portray himself as a victim, as he usually does with these things. It's a witch hunt. How are Republicans handling this? And then what is the sentiment of the general public at large with uh, impeachment inquiry and their feeling on this whole Ukraine thing? We are seeing Republicans in a really tough spot, and particularly those in Congress. I mean, look at Senator John Thune, a member of the Republican leadership who said, you know, he didn't think the president did anything wrong. And then he was asked, had he he been president, would he have done the same thing? And Thune said no. (laughs) Uh, We also saw... Former Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, who remarked that if all of these senators could vote by secret ballot, they would all vote to remove the president. Now, clearly, that's some speculation, but there really are many of them in a tough spot. They don't know how to defend the president. They don't know if they should even defend the president. At this point, there's only one Republican House member who is backing the impeachment inquiry. And we've seen some members of the Senate try to take a more cautious path. Maine Senator Susan Collins saying that she couldn't comment because she may have to play the role of juror at some point. Uh, But this is a tricky one for them and a tricky one for them to figure out what to say. And they're going to be looking at national polls and we can see in a CBS poll released over the weekend, um, that a majority of Americans support at least holding an inquiry. Now, that number is driven largely by um, nearly every Democrat says (laughs) there should be an inquiry, and most uh, independents is really driving that number. The last thing I wanted to ask, Joe Biden seems to be kind of quiet. I know he said a few things. What's his uh, reaction to all this? How is he handling this? Joe Biden might be in one of the trickiest spots because of all of this. He is right in the center of this controversy. There's a lot of concern among Democrats that he's going to sort of end up tarred by this because people will say, as we saw in that CBS poll, where a plurality said, yeah, what what is going on with Joe Biden? Should he be investigated? A number, again, largely driven by Republicans. But Biden is trying to, to take this one day at a time. We've seen him be quite critical of the president as well as trying to argue that it's it's wrong for the president to have acted this way and that evidence that the president acting in this way is that he's the best Democrat to run against him, showing that the president is scared of him and willing to go to any lengths because he pulls the best of him. So Biden trying to make the best of what is a, a not so great situation. And we're going to have to see in the coming week or two how this whole thing plays out in the polls for him. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They get on board, they're ready to go, there's a problem with the door, they get it fixed, and now they think they're going, but then by the time they actually are ready to take off, the airport has closed to repair a runway. So they're stuck again, back to the hotel rooms at 4 a.m. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you, Oscar. We're going to be talking about an airline horror story, American Airlines Flight 988. This plane was stranded in Peru for three days. And instead of American Airlines booking uh, a lot of the passengers on another flight or carriers or bringing in a whole new plane, 
they just kept trying to fix the plane and there was delay after delay after delay. As we said, this lasted three days. Tell us what happened. And at the very end of this, we'll get into some tips on what people should do in case this type of thing happens to them. Well, American says this was a run of bad luck. Passengers say they didn't do anything different. They were trying to do the same thing over and over again and didn't work. But first day, it's a flight from Lima, Peru to Dallas-Fort Worth. Leaves uh, close to midnight in Peru and arrives back in the United States about 7 a.m. So the first night, they're taxiing out. They're ready to go. And the pilots and flight attendants discovered that the intercom that they used to communicate wasn't working. So they have to go back to the gate. Maintenance says they need a part. The part has to come from Miami. That's not going to arrive until the next day. They basically, uh, they cancel the flight, but they technically just postpone it 24 hours. Say, come back same time next day. And same thing happens, different mechanical problems. So they get on board, they're ready to go. There's a problem with the door. They get it fixed and now they think they're going. But then by the time they actually are ready to take off, the airport has closed to repair a runway. So they're stuck again back to the hotel rooms at 4 a.m. This is sort of a terrible procedure that the passengers have to go to. You have to re-enter the country. So 2 a.m., there's two guys on duty at the immigration uh, booths. They have to cancel your exit stamp and readmit you to the country. Then you got to wait in line for vouchers for hotel and, and meals, and then you got to get your baggage, and then you got to wait in line for a shuttle to the hotel. So it's a grueling experience for passengers. And then the third night, it's the same story over again. Actually, two maintenance problems. They get one fixed. They get ready to go. They're literally on the runway at four in the morning, and then there's an engine problem. And so they got to scrub that. And it's not until the third cancellation that I'm American says to everybody, hey, we'll get you on another airline. And that's one of the many things that that could have gone differently that passengers say they, they should have done a better job of taking care of them. What did the airline say? Why did they keep going with this routine instead of bringing in another plane? So American says each day they thought the the plane that was in Peru, the 757 there on the ground, was going to be fixed and it would be going before you could bring in another airplane. Some people think after the second cancellation, they should have just sent another airplane. People got very antsy about flying on that airplane that kept breaking down. And so maybe the proper thing would be send in another airplane. They got a crew there with them. So let's get a different 757 that doesn't have a mechanical problem and go, and then you can fix that other one and use it. I can't imagine being stranded for so long. It happened to me once, but it was only one night, and I was able to go home the next day. What do we do if this happens to us, if we get stranded? Um, The time that happened to me, luckily, I was with a friend who traveled a lot, and she was able to help navigate us through that and get us a hotel and all that stuff. But what do you do if you've never gone through this before? It's a really good question. I think there are things you need to do in advance, especially on long international trips, um, recognizing that this could happen to any of us. You need sort of your own operations center. You just can't rely on the airline to rebook you. They're not being very creative about how they can get you out of there. There are lots of websites that can come up with creative itineraries that would uh, at least get you home. And then I think uh, it's always better to take a bird in hand than to hope and pray that the airplane will get fixed. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it might get you back a little bit later than if the plane gets fixed and goes nonstop, take that plane that looks healthy over the uh, airplane that looks sick. And then the third thing I mentioned is use social media. It's interesting. Airline social media desks 
have migrated physically into the operations centers of the main main airlines. So if the social media desk sees a bunch of people screaming about cancellations in Peru, they can go over to the manager on duty and say, hey, we got a problem in Peru and it's getting a lot of traffic on social media. We got to get these people out of there. And that puts pressure on the operations people to maybe take an extra step that they wouldn't normally take. And one of the last things that I think is pretty important is that you got to know your rights, even though there are very few. But in the U.S., airlines have to refund your ticket if they cancel the flight and pay for hotels and meals, things if it's their fault, in which case in this situation that we've been talking about, it would have been their fault. So, And I think that the airline did help these people get uh, hotels and all that stuff. But that is an important thing because if you're stranded, they do have to help you there. If it's a weather problem, they don't have to provide hotels. Some some do, or they provide uh, discounted vouchers or things like that. But generally, you're on your own if it's a weather problem. In, in terms of a refund on cancellation, um, that's if they never transport you to where you're going. So they, they cancel the flight, and you say, hey, I'm going to go to another airline, or I'm going to scrap my trip. Then you're entitled to a refund. If they actually do transport you, then you don't get a refund. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Good to be with you. You do need to stop sometimes and really appreciate where you are and be fully present in the moment to fully appreciate it. Just to turn off the thrusters, kick back and just appreciate where I was. And that's what I did. And I ate a tuna fish sandwich while I slowly drifted across the bottom of the ocean and looked out the portal. It was great. Joining us now is Josh Dean, author and journalist and contributor to Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about an adventurer who just had another first. You think of big adventuring first, and there are not that many left. But Victor Vescovo has just knocked off one of the latest big ones where he reached the Malloy Deep, the bottommost point in the Arctic Ocean. This was part of a mission he called the Five Deeps mission to hit the uh, lowest spots in each ocean. Josh, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, I would say this is probably the biggest adventure accomplishment left to be done on planet Earth, certainly. He had previously climbed the seven summits, so the seven highest mountains, and was looking for the next big thing. And he sort of thought the inverse of that, the lowest point in all five oceans, is really something that was begging to be done. Richard Branson talked about it a little while back. And two of the five had never been visited at all. And the deepest of all, the Challenger Deep out in the Pacific, had only been reached originally by the original explorers back in the 60s, and then only by James Cameron once since then. So even the deepest place on the planet had barely been touched. And to do this whole thing, he had to commission the building of a new submersible. They called it the limiting factor. And over this, they covered more than 46,000 miles. They discovered maybe 40 plus new species of uh, underwater animal. They uh, were able to scan and create new underwater maps. I mean, this is a lot of stuff that was accomplished because of this crazy adventure that he wanted to get done. That's the thing. It's like often I think we think of these like rich, eccentric adventures as just like crossing something off the bucket list. This is a legitimate, important exploration for science and for sort of human knowledge, because the reality is the reason no one had done this is because there's no vehicle existed on the planet that could get to the bottom of the ocean repeatedly. Submarines 
are designed primarily for the military and they don't go deeper than like a thousand feet. We're talking about 35,000 feet in the case of Challenger Deep. Really expensive, really hard to build a submarine that goes that deep and you kind of need a rich guy who's willing to pay for it. Josh, you were there when Victor went down in his first trip in the submersible. Tell us what that was like and then tell us everything that had to go into really uh, constructing this thing. So his submarine is called the Limiting Factor. It's the only submarine we call a submersible on the planet capable of going below 7,000 meters. Now, there are a few that can go as deep as 6,000. Every one of those is owned by a national government or a military and not available for private use. So I was on board back in December when Victor took the limiting factor to the bottom of the Puerto Rico Trench, which is the deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean. It had been tested down to a few thousand meters, but nothing remotely close to where he needed to go. So this was like a sort of test. It was going to go to 8,300 meters on its very first attempt at a deep. So he basically, it was like taking a prototype machine out <laughs> into the, the world, like a spacecraft, for instance, right. and just hoping that it's going to work the first time. And, and days before he yeah, even sorry. went down, uh, there was like a leak in it. Uh, there was kind of a robotic arm that was supposed to be used to grab samples and things like that. That thing was broken. But, you know, a few days after trying to fix that, he said, hey, I'm okay. Let's still test this thing because if weather doesn't permit, you know, you might have to wait an entire year to get this done again. He'd set a pretty ambitious timeline. He wanted to do all five in under a year. And to do that, you had to hit the specific oceans at specific times because the sea state needs to be in a certain point because the surface operations, the ship part is actually pretty complicated. Actually, the most dangerous and the most complicated part, people don't understand this, of launching a submersible, which is a small submarine that requires a mothership, essentially, is getting it in and out of the water and getting the human into it. Because if the sea is at all rough, it's very difficult and dangerous to launch the submarine with a person in it. So basically, you got to hit these places at a specific time. And like you said, there were problems right up until the day he went for the dive. Yeah, the hatch leak, the robotic arm fell off. But the company that built it, this small operation out of Florida called Triton Submarines, and they're the best at making these little tiny submarines that can go deep. The guys who built it were on board the ship. So they were able to do the repairs in real time, like staying up through the night and working on it. And Victor was confident by the time he went for that dive that he was going to make it to the bottom of the Puerto Rico deep. And he did. It was very dramatic because it was like the last day in that window wow. that he could even attempt it. It ended up taking 26 months and about $30 million to construct this submersible. And now he's hit all five deepest parts of the ocean. We mentioned how mapping the bottom of the ocean was a big part of this because nobody really gets down there to do it. What are some of the biggest takeaways of this whole adventure that Victor Vescovo went on? There's so many. I mean, he hopes that this is like as much as anything is like the beginning of a new era of deep sea exploration. So he's commissioned and paid for this submarine. He plans to make some more dives out in Challenger Deep, for instance. But he hopes that he was like reminding us that the bottom of the ocean is very little understood. I mean, we know so much more about space, frankly, than we do about the very bottoms of our ocean, the areas below 6,000 meters. Depressingly, he was finding plastic at 35,000 feet under the ocean. I thought like, that was very it, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so like our impact is felt at every inch of this planet, and I, and I think that increased understanding and mapping the bottoms of the ocean, also sea life, the organisms that the science director on the mission is a specialist in these so-called hadal zones, which are below 7,000 meters, which are almost no one knows anything about what lives down there, and not much does, but there is life down there. Josh Dean, author and journalist, contributor to Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me on. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.